Thank you to this episode's sponsor, my favorite, Tony Overbay, licensed marriage and family therapist and podcast host of one of my favorite podcasts, The Virtual Couch, which is basically free therapy. What I'm most excited about what Tony's doing right now is he just came out with a new marriage course called The Magnetic Marriage Program. On his website, he says, want to know what's worse than divorce? Running a daycare with someone you used to date and calling that a marriage. Being roommates instead of lovers. And that is exactly why he created the Magnetic Marriage Program. Check it all out at his website, TonyOverbay.com. Welcome to ICU, a podcast where we advocate that compassion and connection save lives. They also make life pretty cool. I'm your host, Julie Lee. ICU. Welcome to episode 98, Becoming Mentally Strong with Matt Reynolds, former NFL offensive tackle. Hey, everybody. Hope you are doing well. It is cold where I live. It is cold here in Utah, much too cold for my liking. The months of January through March in the year, I'm going to be honest, are the time of year that I just have to push through and get through it. Maybe some of you can relate to that uh, because it's cold here and Christmas and New Year's are over. I just, I got to push through until we get some warm weather. The problem is it was warm here for a little bit. There was this week that felt like spring and then it started snowing again, which we knew that would happen because it's Utah. But I'm really working on liking winter more, finding activities that I enjoy in the winter. I am so excited today to have my friend Matt Reynolds here with us. Just to give you a little background on Matt, and Matt, if you're listening, I'm sorry if I got this wrong. I'm actually looking at your stuff on Wikipedia, and I am seeing that me and Matt have the same birthday. We're both born on May 31st. So that's cool. That's cooler than anything else I'm about to say. We have the same birthday. He went to high school at Tintview in Provo, Utah, where he was a three-time All-State offensive lineman, and he held the team to the state championship as a senior. He was also named the Utah Gatorade Player of the Year and Parade High School All-American in 2005. And of course, then he went on to his college and NFL career. He attended Brigham Young University, and he also went on to play in the NFL for the Carolina Panthers, Philadelphia Eagles, and the Kansas City Chiefs. I first met Matt when we lived in the same area around, I don't know, like six years ago. And I love having conversations with Matt because he is someone who's known for his incredible athletic ability, obviously. He's also a deep thinker with some really interesting perspective that I really appreciate. And I'm grateful he's on the podcast today to share his light on mental toughness amidst the sports scene and especially in professional football. Here he is. Matt Reynolds, welcome to the ICU podcast. Thank you. Will you start by just introducing yourself a little bit about your life? Yeah, so born and raised here in Utah, the son of a professional football coach. Grew up playing a lot of sports. I tried everything at an early age and kind of gravitated towards basketball and football. Played those all the way through high school. Football continued on into college. Was fortunate enough to receive uh, a few scholarship offers. I ended up playing for Brigham Young University, where my dad coached and where my brothers were playing. And then that continued on to a career in the NFL about three years. Sports obviously were always going to be a major part of my life and have continued to be. Learned a lot from it. You have an incredible wife, Bree. Yes. And you have how many kids? We have three and one on the way. So she's due here in about two weeks. So we'll have two girls and two boys at that point. 
Very cool. When I first met you, I recognized your name, but I didn't know where from. And my husband was like, I think he was kind of a big deal at BYU. The thing I'm most well known for, I guess, that has endured um, (laughs) is there was one play in a one of our bowl games. We were down. We were trying to come back. We ran this play that was supposed to be a really quick pass. So the quarterback wasn't supposed to hold on to the ball very long. He was supposed to get rid of it real quick. We did what's called an aggressive set where we go after the defensive line, knowing that if we get beat, quarterback's not going to have the ball for very long. Unfortunately, the receivers were all covered. So he didn't have anywhere to throw it. So when I inevitably got beat, the quarterback ended up having to scramble outside of what we call the pocket. So he kind of sits in that same spot all the time. Mm-hmm. And he had to run out of that area. And the way he ran actually my direction towards the sideline. And my defender, the defensive end, was chasing him down. Meanwhile, my helmet had come off in all of this scramble. Sh- scramble and struggle. And I was able to chase him down without my helmet and knock him over before he was able to get to the quarterback. And uh, Riley Nelson ended up throwing it. Cody Hoffman caught it and was able to score. I think because of the situation, because of the dramatics of not having a helmet on. (laughs) Um, And then being able to chase this guy down as a great big 300-plus pound offensive lineman, it made news and, and it was it was actually on the ESPN's top 10 plays for that week. And I was told that it's on some BYU's top plays list. That's and fun. So, yeah, it was kind of fun. It's, it's fun. What was fun for me about it is so me and me and my dad and all my brothers, we all played on the offensive line. And the offensive line, if if you know much about football, is not really a showy position. And it's not really a position that gets a lot of recognition right. unless you right. mess up. And so what was fun for me is it was it was kind of a, a unique situation where as an offensive lineman you were able to to play such a significant role in the play that there was you know, some recognition there. And it, it was just a fun game. And we ended up, we ended up winning and. Which always helps. Yeah. And it was just, it was just a fun situation. It was just a really fun game. That's cool. Talk to me about then you go into the NFL. Who'd you play for? What was that like? Yeah. So um, I entered the NFL draft and was projected to be drafted high. Some places had in the first two or three rounds, other places said kind of three to five. And really the way that it works out now is, is if you're drafted in the first three or four, five rounds, you're usually pretty well set to go. You get a lot of attention by the coaches, a lot of one-on-one work, and those are the guys that typically have longer careers. Not always, but usually. And so if you can get drafted in one of those rounds, your path is a little bit easier as far as maintaining a longer career. So that's what we were hoping for. That was the goal. I ended up watching the whole draft, sitting there with my phone, and phone call never came. So you just sit and wait. Yeah, you just sit and wait and hope that, hope that somebody calls you and lets you know that you're going to be drafted. So we watched the whole thing and no call came. So I ended up being an undrafted free agent. Is that hard mentally? Or? Yes, because, because of the career that I had at BYU, I had started every game of my career. So I, I think I tied the record with Jan Jorgensen for the number of games started at 52, I believe. That plus some, uh, I had received some some attention as a junior, people saying, hey, you know, maybe you ought to enter the draft early. If you do, you know, you could be a top draft pick. And so there were some things that kind of led up to the idea that the NFL was going to be this awesome career. Yeah. 
And so when it wasn't, it definitely was difficult, partially because of what it then meant. You know, as a free agent, you're kind of the bottom of the barrel and you have to overcome some pretty incredible odds to be able to make it. And so when you see a guy in the NFL today that started as an undrafted free agent and worked his way into a starting role or into a role where he's able to make a long career out of it. It's, it's really impressive. Okay. So what did you do from there as a free agent? What did you, so I started you off, get in? Yeah, I was in Carolina and worked through a spring camp and fall camp. And right as the season started, they released me. And from there, I was picked up by uh, the Philadelphia Eagles, which was really kind of a unique situation because my older brother was currently there and had been there for a couple of years just an awesome experience. So he and I played together in high school, college, and in the NFL together, which I don't know if it's been done. It's, it's only been done a few times. So that was really interesting and, and a unique experience. At the end of that season, that was Andy Reid's last season. And so Andy ended up leaving and going, taking most of the staff to Kansas City. And the new staff came in right as spring camp was starting. And I was released right in the beginning. The Kansas City Chiefs ended up calling and picking me up. Went down there. Went through camp with them and, and spent a little bit of time with them. And was released but later that fall. Had some prospects. I had some people call. As we started to kind of look into some nagging health issues that I was having, uh, we realized that they were a little bit more severe than we had originally thought. And so we ended up deciding to hang it up and continue on with life post-NFL football. Cool. Do you feel like that was the right choice for your family? I do. The NFL is a very different job. It's a very different career than what most people imagine, especially when some of these documentaries and reality shows have come out about the NFL and about those players. You kind of get an idea of what it's like, and it's totally different than anything I've seen. It's a very stressful career. There is zero job security. People think, you know, you sign. So for example, I signed over a million dollar contract with Carolina. And by the time I was released, I had only been paid about seven or eight thousand dollars of that. Wow. And so the way that the contracts work out is it binds you to the team, but it doesn't really bind the team to you. The only guaranteed payment you have is a signing bonus or, or any sort of guarantee in your contracts, which is not all that common in the NFL. So it's incredibly stressful. You have to put everything else on hold. You have to devote 100% of everything you have to that job. In the meantime, your coaches are constantly looking for somebody who's better than you or has more potential than you or is younger than you. And so there's there's just a lot of things that work against you. Talk to me a little bit about the mental health, emotional health side of all of this, what you experienced, good and bad, you know. It's stressful, I'm sure. Yeah, well, and you really see that. And I think that that's why... When you look at professional sports across the board, there's a lot of substance abuse. There's a lot of issues that go along with playing professional sports. And I think a lot of it is people are trying to decompress. It's weird because we all kind of imagine this glitz and glamour of what a professional career would look like. When somebody gets there, it's so stressful and it's so hard and there's so much going on that they want to detach from it. There are and were a lot of visible and invisible mental and emotional health issues in the locker room with the team. I was fortunate enough to have a bit of an episode in college where I ended up having to go and, and meet with a sports psychologist. And that experience, I think, maybe as much as anything else, helped me when I got to the NFL because I had a set of skills that I had been working on with this psychologist that allowed me to shake off 
all of the extra problems that come and kind of ground myself in what is foundationally me. And I didn't have to be blown about every time there was a problem because I could always come back to, I guess, my center, my foundation. It really set me up to have more success than I than I think I otherwise would have. Are you comfortable sharing about that episode in college? Yeah. What, what was that all about? How did it come up? Yeah. So while I was playing, I had a family member who had some medical issues and gone in for, for what, what was supposed to be a fairly routine operation. Some mistakes were made. And on top of that, post-surgery, the hospital missed the signs that these mistakes had been made. And so long story short, basically, it became a life-threatening issue. And there were a few weeks where, where we weren't sure what the outcome was going to be. On top of that, I had been having some, some health issues of my own, and I was unsure what my potential career was at BYU and beyond. This would have been my sophomore year. And did you start your freshman year? I did. Okay. Yep. So at this point, and it was right at the end of my sophomore year. So at this point, I'd already started for a couple of years. I was in the program. Really what you would have expected to be somebody who's fairly stable at that point. I've been in college now for three years. So I had redshirted, played two years. I was married, had a child. In a lot of ways, I should have been about as stable as a, as a college kid could be. So on top of all of these things that were happening, I was having some issues in some of my classes. So my grades were starting to slip. All of these pressures, all of these stressors added up so quickly and so forcefully that I stopped sleeping. I was having debilitating migraines. Oh, migraines alone. Are... Yeah. So it, it was it was an incredibly difficult time. And fortunately, it was after the season. And so my performance as it is measured was basically what the coaches were seeing uh, in the weight room, uh, lifting weights and, and performing that way. And they could just tell that I wasn't doing well. I physically didn't look well. And then because because my dad coached there, they kind of already had an idea of, of some of the things that were going on in the family. And anyway, I ended up having a discussion with the then head coach, Bronco Mendenhall, and I kind of just laid out what was happening. He handled it great and uh, recommended that I go and meet with our team sports psychologist, Dr. Craig Manning. And I began meeting with him basically daily. And then that progressed to the point where I could go every other day. And then pretty soon it was every week and then every other week. And he he taught me a lot of coping mechanisms and ways to change the way that I was viewing everything. And especially specifically problems that I was dealing with. The tools that he gave me, I think, allowed me to reset and be more deliberate with how I was going to handle my life. Up until that point, I just, you, things come up and you just react. React. It's just always reactionary. This allowed me to be much more proactive and view my life as what it is now, but potentially what it could be, as well as always focusing on the task at hand, always being task oriented instead of ego oriented, where you can really focus on what's next, what can I do now? And there's a tremendous amount of power and a tremendous amount of control that comes from, from that mentality. Yeah, I might need to ask you more about that later. I think I could use some of that. Sounds like really powerful stuff. And it's obviously impacted you forever. Yeah. He gave me a journal and he basically said, here's the things you're going to do in this journal. It was super simple. It was write down three things that you did well today. Write down two things that you could have done a little bit better. And then review what your goals are for tomorrow and review what might be a problem. And then kind of go over in your mind how you can force yourself to stay on task, to stay in the moment and just do the next thing that you can do. 
How did compassion play a role in that time? How did, how were you supported? You know, that's a really interesting question for me. When I look back on any situation of, of difficulty at first, you don't really see the compassion. As I thought back on that time in my life, I was absolutely surrounded by compassion and compassionate people. Again, I was fortunate to live in a very close-knit family and I had the support of my family and, and that was incredibly helpful. But what I also had was friends that stepped in, teammates that stepped in, coaches, even professors. I had still to this day, one of, one of my favorite memories is from one of my professors. I was struggling in his class and I went to him and I said, I, I don't think I'm going to pass. And here's all the things that are going on in my life. And it would just help me out a lot if you could help me out. I don't know exactly what I expected. I think I expected him to take it easier on me and he didn't. And in, a, in an odd way, that was one of the most compassionate things he could have done for me because he, he laid out a plan and a way to overcome the issues I was having in his class without him needing to take it easy on me. And he said, look, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take it incomplete. We're going to meet every so often. We're going to meet in these frequencies. You and I am going to make sure that you understand what's going on. Don't worry about class. Go take care of your family. Take care of your your, your, your kid. Take care of your wife. Take care of your, your parents and your siblings. Take care of yourself physically. And let's just do this when we can. Let's deal with this when we can. And it was incredibly difficult because I still had to do everything that was expected. Yeah. But the fact that he was able and willing to show me that compassion and to take a step back and say, here's a kid that needs help. The best way to help him isn't to just give him the C, right? Yeah. It isn't just to pass him. What's going to help him the most is to give him some time and some one-on-one -on -one attention. There were several situations like that that made a huge difference in that moment and in my ability to handle everything, but also in just in my life in general. He's still a good friend of mine. We communicate pretty regularly. It's something that I will never forget. That's a really powerful lesson. What is the challenge of being in the spotlight as far as that social pressure? I think there's a lot of challenges and I think they're different for every person, every individual. There's obviously the challenge to stay grounded and to stay humble and... People that don't even know you think you're awesome. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, and it, which is kind of a blessing and a curse. Yeah. Well, and there's, there's some more well-known and obvious issues with everybody thinking that you're amazing. Which there is are, stressful, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, it can definitely be stressful. And I mean, my wife had to get used to not being able to go to the grocery store with me without it taking two or three times as long because everybody wanted to stop and ask why we didn't beat the last game or why <laughs> why something had happened or wanted my review of the game. And it, That's it, tough. it really is. You kind of get thrown into this superstardom. This, it's kind of like this microcosm of fame that you kind of hold on to while you're in it. One of the interesting things about it is you kind of get used to people being interested in your life and kind of knowing things that are going on. Um, Even if you don't know them personally, they kind of know about you. Yeah, they kind of know about you and they kind of know about things you're, that are going on. And I was always shocked about how much people knew about the team and about the individuals, you know, the individual players, as well as the drama and the different things that were happening in the locker room. And it was always incredible how much people knew especially now after the fact, when I look back, I know very little about things that go on. I don't know how to be like a fan <laughs> because my dad was always there. One of my brothers or myself was always there. And so I always knew everything yeah. through that. And, and so now people talk to me about stuff that's going on and I'm like, how, how do you, how do you do this? Like, how do you be, <laughs> how do you be a fan and know all of the things that 
all fans yeah. know I, I don't I don't have that experience you know obviously there's there's a real easy path towards arrogance self-centeredness did you ever feel that slipping a little did you have moments where you had to pull yourself back I was pretty pretty good to humble you <laughs> <laughs> yeah this would be a, this would be a good conversation to have with her she loved it she is like the spotlight queen like if if you could set up a situation well, she's so her, good with people she, I'm sure she is awesome she loves people people love her and I think yeah. because of all of that she just really shines in front of people and with people and I mean she's got friends from the different cities that we played, from the different teams that we played on. She has more friends, even though she had way fewer opportunities to interact with anybody than I do, but she's she's just that type of person. And I think the fact that I'm not as much that way, I'm much more introverted. I don't really like the spotlight. Um, <laughs> I kind of had to learn what to do when you're in the spotlight, how to, how to react and how to handle all of that. And so I think that actually lent itself to be a benefit to me in that regard, in that there was always a part of me that never really felt like I was as important or as cool as everybody else thought I was. And so it... Which is probably good. It ended up being good because it kind of balances out what everybody else seems to think. I wouldn't say that I ever really had an issue with it because of that. And I think partially also because my dad had set some interesting records when he played. And then, like I said... I had two older brothers that played, and when I was at BYU having this you know, awesome career, my older brother was playing in the NFL, and so for me, it wasn't as much like, oh, hey, look how awesome I am. It was just kind of the next step in the progression. It was yeah. just kind of what happened. That's what our so, family does. Yeah, and that may that may sound arrogant, but it, it really wasn't, and if, if you hung out with my siblings and, and, and my family, you'd see that as big a part of our lives as football was, and still is, we never let our personal value come from our performance on the field. Which is huge. Which was huge. And I think a lot of that came from my parents. They did a great job trying to make sure that we were focused on the right things. And then I think another part of it was I had brothers. <laughs> and so if you ever started to get a little bit too arrogant or a little bit too big for your britches, they mm-hmm. put you right back in your place. And we're all about the same size. So <laughs> it's not like any one of us could beat up any of the other one. But if all three of us beat, up, up, one. beat up one, yeah, you'd feel that. I see things in the news and I see people that are really well known and I don't envy them. It's tough. Yeah. It's tough. And yeah, I think just the grounding work is super important. My last episode was with this guy named Todd Sylvester, who's awesome. And that's really, really incredible things in the world. And he talked about how I can't get prideful because I know that's the distraction of me completely. Mm -hmm. You and your brothers, like you said, you're all like large people, right? Like you're all big, tough football players. And that's a really uh, surface level the way to look at it. But as far as like strength, what now, knowing what you know now, having the perspective you have now, having little babies, all the things, what do you value as strength? What's strength to you? I think that's a really good question. I think I go back to how strength has been measured in my life in the past, which is usually basically strength was measured as as your ability to overcome a force, right? So when you're laying down to do bench press, your strength is measured by your ability to stop the gravitational pull of whatever weight you have on your bar and not just stop it, but to be able to overcome it and put that weight back up. And so being able to overcome whatever that force is, I mean, that's how it's measured in sports. That's how it's measured in the weight room is whatever weight you're trying to lift or being able to overcome that. 
And I think that that translates or has translated in my life pretty well because that I feel like is, is how I have viewed strength in my life. What's different maybe about emotional or mental strength and fortitude is for some reason in our minds, we look at physical strength as either, either you can grow or you can shrink, right? You can get stronger, you can get weaker. And I feel like sometimes with the mental and emotional and, and the spiritual side of our lives, we almost look at it as it's either on or it's off, right? We either are strong or we're not. And when we compare ourselves, especially to other people, she can handle this because she's a strong person and, and I'm not that person. And when you look at emotional and mental and spiritual strength as an individual, really in a lot of ways, it should be more malleable than physical strength. You should be able to overcome a lot quicker than you can physical strength. Physical strength, there's a lot of different things that are happening all the time in your body that contribute to what ends up being your physical strength. But that process, I think we do ourselves a little bit of a disservice by viewing it that way. And I think if we could view it more from, look, there are specific things that I can do in any moment when confronted with any adversary, with any stress, with any problem, there are specific things that I can do right now that will increase my strength, that will increase my ability to overcome whatever that force is that's opposing what I'm trying to get done. Someone was talking to me about this a while back, Ty and Sarah Bennett were on here and we were talking about how we also, with strength sometimes, we put a lot of value on it. Like we kind of want people to always be okay. Mm -hmm. And we say like, you're good, you're okay. Like it's kind of an assumption because sometimes it's uncomfortable maybe to view strength also as like showing up authentically. And sometimes that means you're sad. And yeah. sometimes it means, you know, you're hurting, you're not performing as well in the weight room. Yeah. But I also think that's a perspective of strength. The strength I think is being confident in who you are, even on your worst days. Oh, absolutely. Well, and when you think about it, culturally in the United States, we ask people when you see somebody, that's how you greet them. It's how you doing. And if somebody responds with anything, but I'm good. Thanks. How are you? We don't, we don't know how to handle it. You're just like, Ugh. Oh, I was fortunate to spend some time in Germany and learn the German language and spent a lot of time with the German people. I had to force myself out of the habit of asking that because in Germany, the German people, when you ask somebody how they're doing, they genuinely want to know. You know, So if somebody asks you, how are you? They expect you to be honest. They expect you to say, I'm dealing with some things. And, and they want to know and, and they're willing and happy to give you some advice or to lend you an ear or whatever it is. And which is really kind of an interesting contradiction to how most people view Germans. Germans are kind of viewed as very, you know, strict and cold and not inviting. And in a lot of ways they are all of those things, but in a lot of ways, they're a lot less likely to let you in quickly. But once you get close to them, that relationship is a lot stronger than, you know, the relationships that we have because there's that extra or added relationship piece to it. And Which is a cool lesson to learn. I think we could learn some things about that. Yeah. And they are okay with people not being fine. They're comfortable with negative emotion. Yeah. Right? They're okay with it. In a lot of ways, we aren't. And I think you're right. I think we could absolutely do better at that as a culture. So much of the resistance and pain and suffering in my life has been not being okay with negative emotion and mm -hmm. negative things that have happened and trying to push that out yeah. has created a lot of pain and learning to embrace it and to feel it. Yeah. I love the, the, the whole idea behind the thought of I see you in that real sort of sense that I can see you. 
And I think a lot of times we don't know to try to really see somebody. When you break that down into its pieces, I think a lot of that is the fact that we don't spend enough time seeing ourselves. And it's really hard for me to genuinely see somebody else and the struggles that they're dealing with if I'm constantly looking in the mirror and telling myself I'm fine, telling myself I'm okay, and then going out and telling everybody else that I'm fine and I'm okay and I'm fine and I'm fine and I'm okay. I'm good. I'm good. Things are good. How are you? And we're constantly reinforcing this. Everything's okay. And we don't allow ourselves to stop and say, well, maybe they're not. Maybe things aren't okay. And what do I, what do, I do with that? Sometimes we, we get so ingrained in the whole idea that I'm fine that by the time we realize there's a problem, everything shatters. And we fall through the floor. Yeah. Well, and we're terrified and all of a sudden we're in spirals of anxiety because what does that mean then? Mm -hmm. We like don't get used to naturally just working through that. Yeah. That's great perspective. To end here, and I'm asking this because I'm sure there's someone listening. I don't think there's, I don't know, maybe there's some NFL players listening. That's cool. But probably most people listening can't 100% relate with all of your experiences. None of us can. But I think they can relate to a lot of these lessons. And so if you were to go back to Matt Reynolds' sophomore year, really in the middle of your struggle before you'd found hope and healing, and if you could tell yourself anything, what do you think, like what kind of advice would you give yourself with what you know now? That's a great question. I think I would tell myself to understand what I can control and what I can't, and to understand that it's okay to let the things that you can't control happen. I think I tried so hard to control everything that I ended up feeling completely out of control. And the more I focused and the the harder I tried to control everything else, the less control I had and the more stressed I was and the harder life was. One of the lessons that I learned, it was actually in Carolina. I I was talking to, oddly enough, a a Utah, you know, a Utah alum, Jordan Gross, a long career. In fact, he was getting ready to retire. At the University at, of Utah? Yeah. So he had played at Utah and then was, was the there Panthers. with me in the, at the Panthers. Gotcha. Um, he was there Would starting. you say that for people that don't have context for that? There's a pretty big rivalry between BYU and Utah. <laughs> yeah. There's a huge rivalry there and everybody handles it a little bit differently. Uh-huh. And so Steve Smith was also a Utah alum, was also at the Panthers. And he did not handle the rivalry as well as I would have liked. And (laughs) it caused some interesting issues in the locker room between him and myself. But Jordan Gross handled it completely different. It was just where he played. And BYU was just where I played. And we were teammates now. His whole thing was he would give teammates, especially young guys, he'd give them a nickname. And I asked him about that one time. And he said, because nicknames endear you to each other. And he said, even if the nicknames don't make any sense. And like... (laughs) One of one of one of our one of our guys was from LSU, and so we called him Duck Dynasty, and so everybody everybody started calling him Duck. What and was your nickname? Did he give you one? Yeah, Mormo for being Mormon. Nice, Mormo. <laughs> Mormo. It was getting close to final cuts, and I knew that I was right on the border of of making it or not. And Jordan, I think, could tell he was aware enough of me and some things. He came up to me and started a conversation. He just asked how I was doing, how I was feeling. He asked why I was so stressed. I just, I couldn't believe that he asked that. What do you mean? You know, as well as I do that I'm, I'm on the chopping block. I'm, I'm right there. So depending on how many players the team decides to keep, depending on where they think I am, I'm either going to make it or I'm not. And he basically said, look, if football ends, so what? I I almost laughed at it. How can you say, you've had a 12 year career. How can you say that when I've only been here for three or four months and I've got a kid and I've got 
had some expenses from everything, trying to you know, move, basically moving out to Carolina, trying to make it work. And he said, if football ends, so what? What happens? And I was like, well, then I start running through all of the things that happen. And he says, okay, so what? Football ends for all of us. And all of us have to deal with that at some point. And whenever it ends, and however much money you have when it ends, the problems may be different, but there's always problems. There's always issues. There's always things that you're going to have to deal with. And your life is going to be your life, and it's going to be what you make it. So if football ends now, or it ends 10 years from now, so what? Live your life. Choose to live a good life and make it what you want. It took me a while for that to really sink in what that was going to mean for me. That was a moment that I'll never forget, and I, I still feel indebted to him for, for having that conversation because I was I was not in a great place, and it really helped me overcome not just that situation, but other negative things that have happened in my life is to say, you know what, bad things are going to happen. When they happen, if I don't control them, then I can't worry about them. I can only worry about what I'm going to do about it. That's great advice, and I would just echo all of that. I'm not going to say much about it because you said it perfectly, but me and uh, my sister Amy, you know, you and I have talked about and listeners know is facing her end, her life journey a lot younger than anyone, you know, would have expected, and her entire podcast that we did together, she felt inspired to do, and it's called Letting Go of Control because Mm -hmm. that's what she's learned over and over again, and that sounds like what you've learned. It's interesting. You see different people in different stressful situations, and I feel like people that work through it, you see patterns of the same lessons. And if we can listen to other people and what they learn, life is so much better. If I can take what you just said and take that into my own life of what can I control? What can I control? I'm better off for it. Yeah. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for coming today and being awesome. I really, really appreciate who you are today because of your experiences. Thanks. He's a cool dude, right? Also, I can say now that since this interview, Matt and Brianna just had their baby this past week. I saw a picture of him and I can just confirm that he is super duper cute. Thank you to this episode's sponsor, my friend, Tony Overbay. I'm especially excited he has this new marriage course coming out called The Magnetic Marriage. And some of the results that you can find on his website of how this is working in people's lives is people are excited to hear their spouse pull into the driveway. They feel seen, acknowledged, and heard by their spouse. He says, we've seen it happen time and time again. The moment someone embraces connected conversation, their marriage literally takes off. Instead of keeping score like they're on opposing teams, our couples are raving fans of each other. If you want to hear more about what he is doing, go to TonyOverbay.com. And hey, listeners, if you haven't had a chance and want to support the ICU message, please purchase a copy of my book, I See You, How Compassion and Connection Save Lives. Buy it for yourself, buy it for a friend who needs to feel seen or who you think could benefit. If you buy it off Amazon, please leave a review, share it with a friend and spread the love. And as always, if you can, we sure appreciate reviews for this podcast. It helps get the message out there. We only have two episodes left for season two, 99 and 100. I am so excited. We are really ending this episode season with just some really powerhouse people in these interviews. Episode 99 is going to be an interview with Operation Underground Railroad aftercare director, Jessica Mass. And I cannot wait. She's someone I really look up to. So I feel very lucky to be able to get an interview with her. Listeners, thank you for being here. Please feel free to reach out to me at julieleespeaks.com. And until next time, my name is Julie Lee and I see you.